Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. So I talk to her, you know, and I say, yeah, you're probably right, Mom. I need to probably change a few things in census. So she starts me thinking in that census, you know, that if they're questioning me about a murder, maybe I am doing something a little different in my life. I eat dinner and I stay there with them talking and stuff like that. About 9.30 that night, the police come back and my dad answers the door. And the officer says, well, we have a few more questions for uh, William. And if he passes these tests we have for him, we won't bother him anymore. And uh, a knock came at the door. Uh, And it was uh, a detective and a policeman, if I remember right and uh, said, we'd like to talk to Bill. We'd like to take him downtown and talk to him. So, uh, you know, Bill, of course, he didn't see any reason to uh, suspect that he wouldn't be home back home that night. Anyway, he, uh, he never did come home, so. I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back to Murder on the Space Coast, a podcast told in 14 parts detailing a series of terrible convictions during the early 1980s that saw innocent men sent to prison. What did they have in common? The involvement of the same prosecutor, the use of the same lying expert witness, dog handler John Preston, and the reliance on jailhouse snitches, some of whom we now know lied. A warning, the language and themes can get a little bit salty, so it may not be suitable for younger or sensitive listeners. Last episode, we heard how Satellite Beach resident Bill Dillon's presence near a crime scene more than a week after a murder made him a suspect in the murder of James Dvorak, a 40-year-old Melbourne Beach man who had gone to Canova Beach looking for a gay hookup. Bill Dillon was questioned by police and denied any involvement. But dog handler John Preston was brought in and worked his magic, linking Dylan's scent to a bloody t-shirt worn by the killer. It didn't matter that an eyewitness who had a sexual encounter with the person believed to be the murderer couldn't identify Dylan. The police say Dylan failed a polygraph test, and with the dog handler stuff, they had enough to arrest Dylan and charge him with murder. He was shipped off to the county jail and it wasn't long before the state moved in and secured a snitch to help its case. In fact, it wasn't even 24 hours. Prosecutors had to know that without additional evidence, there was no way they could keep Dylan locked up. At 10 o'clock, I came on the news that I was suspect for committing the murder that happened on Canova Beach. They showed a picture of me, and they showed him white sheet and taking the body out, a beating death and explained the beating death and explained that I was the suspect and I was currently in the Brevard County Jail and un- unbeknownst to me that at 12 midnight that night the Roger Dale Chapman called his attorney and told his attorney that I had confessed to the crime 
Well, his attorney called Michael Hunt, the prosecutor, or assistant prosecutor in this case, and said, let's make a deal. So that's what they did. They made a deal to drop the charges against him for him to say that I confessed to the crime. Now, I don't know about this at the time. All I know is in the next morning, they came and took me out of that 17-man cell and put me in a single cell. For whatever reason, I do not know. Had you spoken to Roger Dale Chapman? No, sir. Had, had you ever told him, I killed somebody? No, sir. I'm not going to sit there under all that police scrutiny and, and say I didn't kill somebody when they're offering me all kinds of easy way outs for it and sit in there and tell somebody that I don't know that I committed a crime that I didn't commit. It was just a fabrication sense of him to try to get some sort of leniency from some trouble that he was in. It's a common thing and it should not be allowed in any court of law in anything for an inmate, a prisoner, to testify something he hears about another prisoner say inside the prison or inside the county jails. It just should not be allowed. And now he received leniency. He received complete charges dropped against him. Now that's quite a leniency. Sexual battery on a 16-year-old girl, charges dropped. Finally, someone says it. I have long preached that there is no way someone in the county jail proclaiming their innocence and turning down plea bargains is going to spill their guts to a complete stranger. I mean, who on earth would do that? Especially if you're waiting for a chance to prove yourself in court. Remember the Wilton Dedge case a few episodes ago? He was returning to Brevard County for a new trial. The man had just won an appeal and thought he was going to go free. Why would anyone believe he was going to confess a crime to Clarence Zaki? I mean, really, it's just preposterous. I have a copy of a handwritten note from Prosecutor Dean Moxley, who supervised the Dillon case for Prosecutors Michael Hunt and Karen Thompson, to Thompson saying, quote, Roger is very cooperative. He's facing a weak sexual battery case. He's received no promise other than reduced bond. Maybe we should deal. That's how you get it done. You make deals with rapists and child molesters. You do anything to cut corners and nail people like Dylan and Dej and Ramos and Bennett. In this case, the snitch was Roger Dale Chapman. Just the kind of seedy character the state wants in making its case. Here is Seth Miller of The Innocence Project. Roger Dale Chapman simply stated that he heard Bill Dillon in a crowded cafeteria of inmates reenact the crime. And it's, it's sort of a completely implausible um, claim considering I don't know any inmate who would reenact their crime when they're claiming their innocence in front of a crowded uh, mess hall in a, in a jail. Um, I think what's more important to understand about uh, Roger Dale Chapman is that he was a longtime snitch for the state. The state had offered favorable testimony to him in a, in a case in another county to get his sentence reduced. And in this case, they've re- they dropped charges of her sexual battery of a 16-year-old directly after he agreed to give testimony in this case. And, and so it's your typical quid pro quo, giving something in return um, for, uh, for, evidence, or for testimony against Mr. Dillon. Years later, Chapman would recant and say that he was coached on what to say by investigators. Here's Miller again. Um, we also saw that the sort of prevalent use of jailhouse informants or snitches, as we like to call them, uh, people who are incentivized or given something 
to provide evidence against a criminal defendant, usually that they confessed. Uh, when it, and what we find in many cases that that confession, supposedly that happened, never actually happened. And in some of these cases, um, these were repeat snitches. Um, um, in Bill Dillon's case, Roger Dale Chapman, and Will Dedge's case, Karen, Clarence Zaki, these were serial snitches and, and had relationships with the folks in the prosecutor's office and law enforcement, and they brought them in for the express purpose of you know, testifying to a supposed jihadist confession that when a jury hears that, it's really, really compelling, and it, and it helps them to overlook any doubts they may have about other pieces of evidence. So when you put all of this together, um, you know, a case that may not have looked that strong looks real strong to a jury. Now, several key things would occur over the next few months, in between Bill's arrest in late August and his trial in December. The first will sound a bit familiar for those of you who listened to season one of Murder on the Space Coast. Once the state announced it was using Roger Dale Chapman as a witness, it created a conflict within the public defender's office because they represented both Chapman and Bill Dillon. So the court assigned a lawyer by the name of Frank Clark to represent Bill. Now, as I understand it, during the 1960s, Frank Clark was one of the best criminal defense attorneys around. But by the 1980s, not so much. His own son called me once and told me that his father had no business taking a murder case. But that's how things went back then. The state would appoint new defense lawyers when there was a conflict of interest. And it's no surprise that in Bill's case and Gary Bennett's case, the new lawyers were regarded as not being up to the task. Sure, they could put on a good show, but not really challenge much. I'll give a head-scratching example of Bill's new lawyer, Frank Clark, not challenging something in a bit. First, here's Bill talking about his lawyer and the similarities to Gary Bennett's situation. Something exactly the same happened to me. I had a, he was a public defender, but let me tell you, he was all heart. He says, they don't have anything here. He said, just relax, we'll get through this. And the very next day, I was taken and put in a single cell when I was in population with like 30 men in a 17-man cell, they put me in a single cell and then told me that I didn't have that attorney anymore, that they would appoint me an attorney because of conflict of interest, whom they said a man said I confessed to him in that cell that night. So it was a conflict of interest with the public defender's office, so they were going to give me another attorney, which inclined they gave me Frank Clark, who had been disbarred, was a drunk, and was also a friend of theirs who had been proffering uh, a sense of, I need some money. A point of clarification there. Clark was disbarred later, a few years after the case, for some shady work on some real estate deals. Now, you might be thinking, what's great about having a public defender? Wouldn't a private attorney, even one with a drinking problem, be better? Well, in the 1980s in Brevard County, some of the best attorneys around were working for the public defender's office. Remember, several prosecutors had even gone from the state attorney's office to the public defenders because they were unhappy with how things were being run. Remember defense attorney Greg Eisenmenger? I spoke with him about this very thing. But there was a lot of frustration. I mean, one of the things that happened uh, from a political point of view uh, is that you saw J.R. Russo come from the prosecutor's office, Norm Wolfinger, 
come from the prosecutor's office. Uh, Glenn Craig come from the prosecutor's office, and they all came to the public defender's office. And uh, this is the same time that I joined uh, the public defender's uh, office. And uh, one of the reasons uh, that these people sort of made a wholesale career change over to the defense side was because of the frustrations on how Doug Cheshire ran his office. One of those prosecutors who quit, Sam Bardwell, went into private practice but he had great admiration for the crew that was working at that time at the public defender's office. Public defender in this period of time were the finest lawyers at, in the public defender's office, and they were probably the most experienced, savvy uh, defense lawyers available, and most experienced by far. And Frank Clark was an aging old goat, way past his prime. I tried some cases with him. You know, frankly, he was pretty lame. Now back to Bill's case. He was arrested on August 26th, nine days after James Dvorak was found dead. Now it's September 4th, and an anonymous caller left a message with authorities saying that two men by the names of Philip Huff and James Johnstone were overheard bragging about beating a homosexual man on the beach. The tip, either ignored or forgotten, was not seen again until 2010. And we'll come back to that later. The other major development to happen between Dylan's arrest and his December trial was that the state found the new star witness in Bill's own girlfriend, Donna Parrish. She provided an alibi for Dylan until she started having sex with the lead investigator in the case, Agent Charlie Slaughter. Yeah, I... I know. You can't make this stuff up. According to transcripts of an internal affairs investigation into the matter, Slaughter tried to get Parrish to talk and would offer her rides home. He bought her beer and cigarettes and they wound up having sex. And now she changes her story and she testifies something to the effect of seeing Bill the night of the murder with bloody hands and lots of money. Now what Donna's whole issue was, was hard to understand because I couldn't tell if it was show business, if it was just saving a skin that she didn't have to save, or she felt, in a sense, to be part of something that was bigger than her at the time and tried to be some sort of starlet in it. Seth Miller of the Innocence Project feels that Parrish was pressured into changing her story. Um, what's important to note about her is that when she was first questioned about this crime, she didn't want to cooperate, and um, the law enforcement said to her, hey, we're going to you know, put you away for 25 years as an accomplice if you don't cooperate. And most people in that situation, uh, whether they know anything about the case or not, are going to uh, cooperate because they're scared. Uh, but also what's important to know is they offered her beer and cigarettes at the time um, for her cooperation, and when uh, the sergeant in charge, Charles Slaughter, was taking her home, um, he ended up having sexual intercourse with her that evening. So um, she was compromised straight from the beginning. Uh the investigator, Slaughter, was demoted. So do you know what Bill's attorney, Frank Clark, does with this information? Right, absolutely nothing. Let me say that again. With a chance to fully discredit a witness and get his client off of murder charges and a possible life sentence, Frank Clark does nothing, not a zilch zero. Here is public defender Mike Parolo 
on what he thought the first time he learned that Clark just ignored the sexual activity and police misconduct taking place between a key state witness and the lead investigator. One of the first things that I think many attorneys would bring up is you can't have a, a state's almost, you know, kind of key witness in terms of uh, um, you know, non-scientific, non-law enforcement witness who's um, having some sort of relationship, whatever it was, um, uh, with the homicide detective in the case, and especially a witness that gave or tried, you know, gave some sort of uh, incriminating um, statement. Um, I mean, that would have been one of the first things to bring up because obviously they have a, a bias um, to, to lie for one another or to prevent, you know, the officer from getting in trouble with uh, um, having some sort of sexual relationship with a, a key witness in a homicide case while the case is pending, while the investigation is pending. Um, and again, that, that astonishes me that that was never attacked. So I interviewed Prosecutor Karen Thompson a couple of years ago for a video I was working on about this story. Here is what she had to say about the sexual relationship between one of her witnesses and the chief investigator, Charlie Slaughter. A quick word about Thompson. She was what you might call a reluctant interviewee. In fact, she was so sure that I was going to somehow edit the video to make her look badly that she videotaped me while I videotaped her. It was very strange. The prosecutors in this case were Thompson and Michael Hunt. Dean Moxley was their supervisor and was clearly involved in the case. There are handwritten notes, as I referenced earlier, and other documents in the case files from Moxley to the prosecutors. It was horrible. It was not my happiest day to find out that the star witness in this murder trial had had some sort of sexual relationship with the chief investigator on the case, the case agent. He was replaced. I always liked Charlie. He was a friend. I had no idea that he would do a thing like that. I feel sure that it was Donna who leaked it to the press. I asked her if she believed Bill Dillon received a fair trial. Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. In the sense that everyone in the courtroom has a job, and this is what a lot of uninformed people who have been blogging and twittering and writing in the newspaper don't understand. Everyone has a job. It was not my job to determine Mr. Dillon's innocence or guilt. It was my job to take the evidence that was given to me by the Sheriff's Department and present that in the light most favorable to the state within the ethical rules and guidelines, and that is what I did. Okay, I think we need to repeat that. The prosecutor in this case says it wasn't her job to determine whether Bill was innocent or guilty. It was her job to take the evidence given her and prosecute. Okay, but what if the evidence falls short? According to the Florida Bar Association's Rules of Professional Conduct, Quote, a prosecutor has the responsibility of a minister of justice and not simply that of an advocate. This responsibility carries with it specific obligations, such as making a reasonable effort to assure that the accused has been advised of the right to and the procedure for obtaining counsel, 
and has been given a reasonable opportunity to obtain counsel so that guilt is decided upon the basis of sufficient evidence. Hmm. Interesting. I tracked down the judge in this case a few years ago, Judge Stanley Wolfman, who went back to practicing law in Melbourne after a short stint on the bench, and he felt that Bill's attorney, Frank Clark, well, he thought he could have done a lot more for his client, especially when it came to the work and the testimony of dog handler John Preston. I don't think that Mr. Clark um, did a uh, great job. Uh, he, was, he had practiced here for a long time. I knew him well. From my recall, he did uh, okay, but I don't think it was uh, uh, the, the greatest defense uh, job in the world. The part that troubled me, and I recall this, was the, uh, the dog tracking uh, evidence. Uh, you know, it was kind of uh, uh, flimsy. You know, they, they had this dog uh, going across A1A, tracking across A1A with all the traffic that had gone by there. Uh, and, you know, and I, I just kind of shook my head uh, uh, internally uh, to, uh, on that evidence. And he did not attack it. Several cases later, uh, as you know, uh, uh, the dog handler was uh, dis discredited. Uh, and the, the, that testimony was, uh, was discredited. I don't think Mr. Clark uh, uh, did a good enough job in regard to that. Uh, had he um, uh, pressed it, uh, I certainly would have uh, uh, gone along with, uh, with uh, anything that he, had, uh, he might have suggested uh, because it was, uh, it was just poor evidence as far as I could see. Now, remember last episode when criminal defense attorney Greg Eisenmenger said, that the use of jailhouse informants, in essence, took away a defendant's Fifth Amendment rights because it essentially forces the defendant to take the stand and refute the informant's testimony. Well, Bill took the stand in his own defense, in part to try and counter inmate Roger Dale Chapman's testimony. And Thompson believes that Dylan did not help himself when he took the stand in his own defense. Something that hasn't been mentioned is Mr. Dillon's demeanor on the stand. He came across cocky, uh, immature, and guilty. The jury didn't have any trouble at all finding him guilty. They were only out about an hour and a half. And this is something that no one is focusing on. A lot of Mr. Dillon's problems were caused by Mr. Dillon's own testimony on the stand. I asked Bill about this, and he said, sure, he was cocky. Why wouldn't he be, he asked. After all, he knew that he was innocent. There was a point in time there where they realized that I hadn't committed the crime, that it didn't matter anymore, that everything was accumulated. It's like my lawyer spoke to me. He said, Bill, what really convicted you was your honesty in the initial interview. I gave them everybody and everything that was involved in my trial. Out of my mouth came all the people that came to my trial. All those people at my trial were witnesses saying I was wearing that shirt that DNA says I wasn't wearing. So it's, it's in the same sense as my honesty actually got me convicted of a crime. Now how is that even possible? It's because they tunnel visioned on me right off the top and said that he's the one that committed the crime. Yet even after hearing Preston, Chapman and Bill's girlfriend testify against him, Bill's family was confident that he would go free. They knew he was innocent. So while the jury was deliberating and preparing to send Bill Dillon away for life, 
his parents went home to write thank you notes, anticipating that he would be found not guilty. We, we thought he's going to be found innocent. In fact, everybody thought he was going to be found innocent, including the, uh, the attorney uh, at the time. Uh, we came home here uh, and uh, was waiting on a decision, and uh, I wrote out a little uh, uh, letter thanking everybody involved and uh, because I, I just knew he was going to be found innocent after Bill had testified at the trial and uh, then our daughter called and said that uh, Bill was found guilty of murder we, we just knew he, he was uh, we just knew he was innocent uh, it was so many things that happened during this trial that uh, that we, there wasn't enough truth in there to convict anybody of a crime as serious as that, that, that crime was. Uh, I don't know what else I can say. It was, a, it, it was a sad day. A sad day indeed, and it would only get worse. Bill was sentenced to life in prison, and even though he was 22 at the time of his conviction, he was sent to Florida State Prison in Rayford, a place known as The Rock, a place with the reputation of housing the worst of the worst, the most violent and scary offenders. It was built in 1928, and it was where Florida executes its prisoners. And so Bill is this young, good-looking, long-haired, fresh-faced inmate, and he told me that he made a grave mistake as he was being processed into the prison. A lieutenant asked Bill if he'd like to go into protective custody just for a while until he got acclimated and saw how things worked. Bill declined. Remember, he's angry and bitter and full of real rage at this point. He's being sent to prison on a life sentence for a murder he did not commit. He told me the thought of spending even just a few days in a tiny cell in protective custody was unbearable. So he declined and was taken to his cell. And so what happened on his very first day, his very first hour in prison, was unimaginable. I'll let him tell it. And he begged me. He says, you need to go to protective custody because these people are just not right. They are not right. They're animals, and they will eat you alive. I was initially raped in the first hour in prison. I never spoke of that to anybody. I never reported it. I had lost who I was, and now I had become somebody else. They put me up under the cell, and within an hour, I was attacked by five uh, prisoners. Not for anything I said or did, there was no words ever passed. They just ran into my cell and started attacking me. I battled as much as I could, but there was really no win situation for me. And at that point, I didn't have the burden of uh, being innocent. I had the burden of trying to survive and stay alive. It was a burden he would have to endure for the next 27 years and will carry for the rest of his life. Next time on Murder on the Space Coast. The t-shirt itself seemed to be in, in pretty good shape. Um, you know, the blood stains were apparent on it. What we didn't know is whether we would be able to get any biological evidence from the really important parts of the t-shirt, which were the armpits and the collar. Um, which is where the um, perpetrator would have sweat while murdering Mr. Dvorak. 
I filed what they call a, a, a motion for DNA testing. The window was closing in July, and I finally prompted myself just to actually file something because I have the attitude now, John, that nothing works. I've been in prison now for 25 years at this point. Nothing works, it doesn't matter. I'm gonna be in prison for life. For now, I'm news columnist John A. Torres, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Albert Torres. That's at J-O-H-N-A-L-B-E-R-T-O-R-R-E-S. And for more information on these cases and web exclusives, please go to floridaday.com. Murder on the Space Coast is written and narrated by me, John A. Torres. The producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Murder on the Space Coast, Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Mm-hmm.